Hey everyone, this is Jake, lead pastor of Christ City Church, East Vancouver, and I want to let you know about a few things. First, if you're not a part of a local church, let me invite you to join us each Sunday morning at 2605 East Pender Street in East Vancouver for worship, word, and sacrament. Second, if you are new and you want to get connected, let me say welcome. Christ City Church East Vancouver is a neighborhood church committed to making missional disciples for the sake of the neighborhood. If you want to be a part of or hear more of what we believe God has called us to do in East Vancouver, please reach out to me at jake at christcitychurch.ca. Today's scripture reading is from 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verses 1 through 11. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you are also to do. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up, as you may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I come. And when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable that I should go also, they will accompany me. I will visit you after passing through Macedonia, for I intend to pass through Macedonia, and perhaps I will stay with you or even spend the winter, so that you may help me on my journey wherever I go. For I do not want to see you now just in passing. I hope to spend some time with you, if the Lord permits. But I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide door for effective work has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. When Timothy comes, see that you put him at ease among you, for he is doing the work of the Lord as I am. So let no one despise him. Help him on his way in peace, that he may return to me, for I am expecting him with the brothers. You may be seated. Jesus, we come to you again uh, asking that you would speak to us in your word and through your word, that you would convict, encourage, challenge us uh, where you want to do those things in us and through us. Pray these things in your name. Amen. Well, good morning again. If you can believe it, I, I can't. We've spent the better part of two years uh, in 1 Corinthians. So this is your first Sunday here. Uh, we've been in this letter for a long time. We know 1 Corinthians fairly well by now, don't we, right? We're experts in 1 Corinthians. Maybe not. If our time in 1 Corinthians has been like this long plane ride, uh, then in chapter 16 now, as we enter this chapter, we're beginning the descent, right? The, the captains come on the PA. He's announced, you know, to prepare yourself, put your buckle on. Like, we're, we're, we're going to descend now. And I don't know about you, but when I come to the end of a long plane ride, I'm looking ahead to what's next. I'm looking ahead to, to where, where I've just traveled to. So for us as a church, where we're going in the coming weeks is really simple. For the next seven weeks, beginning uh, May 30th, I believe, we're going to ask the question, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? We're going to walk through the Gospel of Mark and see the various titles and names given to Jesus by his Heavenly Father, uh, by other people, by, by himself, and even by demons. And we're going to ask the question, who, who is Jesus? And so if you're new or new to church, new to this space, uh, that series is especially designed with you in mind. We're going to explore the, the fundamental tenets of the person of, of Jesus. Then after that, for the rest of the summer, we're in the book of Proverbs, looking at wisdom, trying to get wise as a community to lead through that. But as exciting as these destinations are, I don't want us to miss what Paul has for us in chapter 16 of this letter. See, at first glance, maybe we heard it. 
Is that music? No? This is a kid's ministry. It's going on downstairs. At first glance, maybe you heard it. It was the music. Or you saw it. 1 Corinthians 16. 1 Corinthians 16 is this sort of smorgasbord, right? Of sort of like things. So Paul begins with something about a collection. And then Paul says something about like, you know, also like, here are my travel plans. And then he says something about like, also greet these people. And it can seem wildly disconnected, like kind of sort of not a, a, a cohesive unit. But if we look at what he's doing there, I actually think there's something for us to get out of this. There's something for us to, to see here. What Paul wants to show us today is what it looks like to live out and live into the resurrection of Jesus. The resurrection of Jesus. Remember, 1 Corinthians 16 comes after 1 Corinthians 15. And 1 Corinthians 15 ended this way. It'll be on the screen behind me. Therefore, my beloved brothers and sisters, be steadfast, immovable. Then Paul says this, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. What we have this morning then are the outlines, a sketch, an example of an abounding life. A life lived on this side of the resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth. Paul will say, and here are our three points this morning, that living from the resurrection means we will be marked by one, generosity with our money, two, generosity with our plans, and three, generosity in our reception. And I'll explain that third point when we get there. First, Paul says this, we should be generous with our money. Look at verses 1 to 4 with me. He writes, Now concerning the collection of the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I come. And when I arrive, I will send those whom you credit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable that I should go also, they will accompany me. To understand what it means to be generous today with our money, we have to first understand what Paul's talking about. We have to enter his first century world. This collection of the saints, do you see that? The collection of the saints is talked about here in 1 Corinthians 16, but also 2 Corinthians 8 to 9, and also Romans 15. So there's these three places in the New Testament where Paul refers to this collection for the saints. Now, we don't know all the details about this collection, this fundraiser. We don't know if there was like a thermometer on the side of the wall that he kind of just like built up over time. Didn't do that. But we do know some things about it. We do know some things about it. First, we know that this collection was raising money for the poor in Jerusalem. We know that for the church to get off the ground in Jerusalem, people had given sacrificially and, and generously. And that there were a number of poor, poor in that city. But we also know in Romans 15, Paul sees this collection as more than just a way to, to meet material needs for, for poor people. No. Paul pictures this collection as a, a window into the unity of the gospel. See, again, if, if we trace the story of how the gospel spread, it began in Jerusalem. People gave sacrificially and generously in order to get this thing off the ground. These Jews who had come to believe in Jesus as the Messiah. And now Paul's saying, listen, you Gentile churches, it's time to give back. 
It's time to now picture for all to see this unity, this oneness in Christ between Jew and Gentile, slave and free, male and female. We're all one in Christ now. And, and here's a way you could do that. See, for Paul, this oneness in Jesus was more than just a theological idea, more than just like, like a platitude or, or a bumper sticker. Paul's saying this theological idea of being one in Jesus, being one people, across all racial and ethnic and gender barriers, is actually to be lived out, to be expressed, to be felt in our communities. So Paul gives them instructions on how to prepare for this collection. And I think if we pay attention to them, these instructions are very helpful as we seek to be generous today. Notice first. First he says, this putting aside is to happen on the first day of every week. The first thing we need to see about being generous with our money is that it is a response of worship. We do not give in order to obtain something. We give having already gotten something. See, Paul could have designated any day of the week for giving. He could have said, listen, on the third day or the fourth day, or, or the fifth day, give on that day. But what does he say? On the first day, give. He specifies. This is to happen on the first day of every week. Why? But what else happened on the first day of every week? What else happened on that first day all those years ago? Jesus rose from the grave. Jesus was triumphant over death, over sin, over the devil. Because that's the day, Paul knows, and we just saw in 1 Corinthians 15, God poured out his abundant work on us, right? That's the day we received a gift that we could never repay should we spend our whole lives trying. It's so telling that when Paul writes about this in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, he appeals not to just like guilt or shame for giving. No, he appeals to the Corinthians' hearts. He says in 2 Corinthians 8, verse 8, says, I say this, not as a command, but listen, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. Listen, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. He's saying, listen, you should give generously because you've been abundantly blessed. And isn't that true for us? Isn't that true this morning? Is it it not true? Have we not been given so much in Jesus? If you've been around here before on a Sunday morning, you know that we give and we make it a clear act to give in response to what we've received in Jesus. That happens every Sunday. And if you're not a follower of Jesus and you're here this morning, we would rather you not give than for you to give from some place of peer pressure or thinking that your financial gift somehow makes you right with God. No. But if Jesus is your king, then the sacrificial giving of your money should be as natural as exhaling the breath that you've inhaled. Should be that natural. Being generous with our money is a response of worship. Now we know this. That doesn't mean it's easy. Doesn't mean it's simple. Doesn't mean we're always excited about it. But but one of the ways we loosen our grip on money, 
we, we fight our battle with greed is by giving our money away. And in the instance of 1 Corinthians 16, giving it to the Lord and to his people, to those in need. It's clear. For, and this is the second thing, Paul says, being generous with our money is, do you see that, for each of us, each of us according to our means. Look at it with me. Paul explicitly says this, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper. Corinth, Christ City, each of us is to give in accordance with our income. So you might be here and you're a student or you're a child. You might be in full-time employment or retired. You might have a lot or very little. Paul does not envision a certain class of Christian or a certain income bracket only contributing to this collection. Giving of our money is not an optional component of Christian discipleship or a future component of Christian discipleship. It's for every Christian in every season. And it's clear. Will the amount always be the same? No. I love the practicality of Paul adding that phrase, right? As you may prosper in accordance with your income. Paul doesn't want you to bankrupt yourself. Paul doesn't want you to go into debt just, just giving away. That There's a wisdom that he's explaining here. No. We give according to our means in the moment. But each one of us is to give. If you're a follower of Jesus, each one of us is to give. And if each one of us is to give, it's so important we see that being generous, this is the third thing, being generous with our money doesn't happen by accident. It doesn't happen by accident. Notice Paul says in verse 2, On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up, as he may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I come. For radical generosity to happen, generosity of the sort that Paul has in mind with this collection, planning must take place. But what Paul has in mind here is not a momentary tug of the heart in response to some impassioned preacher, but actively organizing our lives, thinking through present and future decisions with the aim in front of us of being generous. See, being generous with our money starts in our hearts with worship. It starts by first seeing Christ, who for our sake became poor, so that we by his poverty might become rich. Changed hearts should lead to changed lives. Lives that in accordance with our means plan to be radically generous with our money and our finances. And not only our money, but as we'll see now, living from the resurrection means we'll be radically generous with all of our plans. All of our planning. This is point two. Look at the generosity with our plans. Verse five says this. I will visit you, Paul says, after passing through Macedonia, for I intend to pass through Macedonia. Thanks, Paul. <laughs> and perhaps I will stay with you or even spend the winter, so you may help me on my journey wherever I go. For I do not want to see you now just in passing. I hope to spend some time with you, if the Lord permits. But I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide door for effective work has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. The gospel changes not only how we spend our money, the gospel changes how we spend our lives, what we spend our lives doing. 
Remember, Paul earlier in this very letter is working from a paradigm of not being his own king, of not being his own Lord. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 6, verse 20, he says, Church in Corinth, you are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Our finances then, like our bodies, come under the good kingship and good authority and good ownership of Jesus. So too, we see now, do our plans, our dreams, our work. Again, notice a few things with me. A a generosity with our plans means looking first to the needs of others. This becomes very clear as we step back and ask the question, why is Paul doing this? Why is Paul doing all this? All that he does and all that he will do. Why is he doing it? Why is he doing it? Why is Paul exerting his energy to collect money for for poor believers in a different part of the world? And why is Paul at great personal risk, right? Traveling in those days, there was no airport lounge. Like Paul's like risking his life to bring the gospel to these different communities. Why is Paul doing this? Why, Why do it, Paul? Why do it? Because Paul has been gripped by the love of God in the gospel. And now, as he says in chapter 13, Christ's love in him means that, verse 7, love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Paul, his preferences, his desires, his likes, his dislikes, are not the center of his decision-making matrix. Do you see that? He is compelled by love for the other. He's not looking to make a name for himself. Look, a narcissist who is just looking to expand his brand or his influence or his kingdom, right, doesn't write, as Paul does in verse 7, for I do not want to see you now, uh, for I don't want to see you now just in passing. He says what? I hope to spend some time with you. He's no fly-by-night itinerant preacher. No, I hope to spend some time with you. Who, who wants to spend time with people? Maybe you're like, I don't. But who wants to spend time with people honestly, right? Especially broken, messed up, confused people like the church in Corinth. Who, who wants to spend time with these kind of people? Someone who loves people. These people. I want to just ask all of us, including myself, who is at the center of our decision-making? Who's at the center? Who determines the plans for our lives? I think if most of us, again, myself included, were to stop and think about how we decided, for example, which church to attend, whether or not to take or, or not take a promotion, where to buy a home, what kind of home to buy. If we stopped, considered these things, we'd soon realize that the group of those considered in these pivotal, monumental decisions is actually fairly small. Sometimes consisting of my nuclear family, but but most of the time, honestly, consisting of me. Me. What I want. What I'd like to see. Notice, Paul anticipates 
a sort of mutuality, a togetherness in, in the body of Christ. He's saying, yes, I'm going to pour myself out, but also I need you. Look at verse 6 with me. He says, and perhaps I will stay with you or even spend the winter. Listen, so that you may help me on my journey wherever I go. Paul pictures the body be being mutually dependent upon one another. We, we need one another. And maybe you think you don't. We need one another. Again, once more, this, this quiet allusion to the body of 1 Corinthians 12 and 13. No part is indispensable. No, no part is unnecessary. Generosity with our plans will mean in love looking to the needs of others. And the gospel should. The gospel should create a community of, of mutual sacrifice. Of mutual laying down of lives. Laying down of plans. But, but notice what's presupposed in all this. Generosity with our plans, and here's the heart of it, means relinquishing control of our lives. Saying things as Paul does, I intend to pass through Macedonia, right? Perhaps I will stay with you. If the Lord permits, do you see that throughout this section? And it's not because Paul's flaky or commitment phobic, but because Paul does not know what the next day holds, let alone what years from now hold. Control and our desire for control is really just a manifestation of our idol of power. We want power. Author Tim Keller, he writes that power idols are deep idols that can express themselves through a great variety of other surface idols like control. Let me give you an example from, from my life because I know you don't struggle with control. Before I became a Christian, I was convinced that I was in control of my life, that I was the captain of my fate. I, I could tell you where I was going to the top, and I could tell you how I would get there by any means necessary, which, no doubt, you can imagine, led to some terribly immoral behavior. Then, at the age of 17, I encounter Jesus in a profound way. My life has changed, but my idol of control doesn't go away. It just takes a different shape. Right? I just redefined what the top was. Now it was famous Christian. I made it. Picked new, more socially acceptable ways of getting there. And, and so I say all that to tell you that you should hear what I'm about to say, not as some harsh words from an unsympathetic outsider, but, but as someone who is still learning what it means to relinquish control to King Jesus in my life. I think in our church, I'm not talking about the church down the street or the church over there. I think in our church, we have an idol of control. And, and I think I'm uniquely positioned to say that because I meet with you throughout the week. Because I know you and I love you. And I want to spend time with you. But I think as a church, obviously not all of us, but for a large portion of us, we've planned our entire lives without even consulting the Lord. We've asked him to bless our dreams and our plans. And we've never stopped and asked, is, is this what you actually want from us, Lord? Is this what you want from me? The book of James in James 4 calls this kind of presumptuous living evil. 
Not like not good, not like unadvisable. No, James calls it evil. This sort of presumptuous living. Generosity with our plans, and this is hard. It's a long thing. But generosity with our plans means slowly but surely, day by day, moment by moment, relinquishing control in our lives and saying, Jesus, you are king and I am not. Even, even when things don't go our way, even when our generosity, our relinquishing hurts us. Listen, I want to show you two things in our text. The first thing is in verse 9. Did you notice that in verse 9, Paul says something kind of strange. He says this. He says, For a wide door for effective work has been opened to me. And then he says, And there are many adversaries. Hmm. Here's why this sounds so strange to us. Because if we think, if God is clearly calling us to something, he's clearly opening a wide door, that this should mean there are no adversaries. There's no obstacles. There's no hardship, no pain. We think the definition of a wide door is a clear door or an easy door. And and to be clear, if if Paul and his contemporaries believed in this kind of like wide door equals easy door theology, the gospel would have never made it here. Do you see that? It, It would have died in the first century in Palestine. But to read the book of Acts is to see fruitful ministry happening in the face of great adversity, great trial, great tribulation. And so maybe right now you're at a workplace where the name of Jesus is a swear word. And you're being passed over, being untreated unjustly because of your faith in him. Let me just say this. This opposition by itself cannot be a sign that God wants you to move on. Why? Because lives poured out in generosity for God's kingdom will, Jesus guaranteed it, elicit opposition from the world, the flesh, and the devil. As Jesus has promised to us. And so maybe we came this morning with this false binary in our mind. And it needs to be torn down. What what am I talking about? Author Andrew Wilson, he says this. He says, we might expect cities and cultures to fall into one of two categories. Those that are close to the gospel altogether and filled with dangerous persecution and those that are open to the gospel and safe as houses. Says some do. But he says mission fields, in truth, combine elephants, uh, elements, not elephants, there's no elephants here. (laughs) Combine elements of both with the doors for the gospel advance wide open, yet with threats and dangers everywhere. It is helpful to know that this has always been true. Always been true. And that for Paul, the opportunities outweighed the opposition. See, what we also must notice is that Paul was also not only experiencing opposition in Ephesus, these wild beasts, these people opposed to him, but he was also experiencing opposition in Corinth. Which means Paul wasn't only experiencing opposition from outside the church. Paul was also experiencing opposition from within the church, within God's people. Right? You know, that that community of of sacrificial generosity and and love and tender care. Not not so for Paul. Let let me invite you to consider the larger context that 1 Corinthians comes to us in. Paul, in our text today, he tells us that he plans to come and visit Corinth again. 
And history tells us that he does do this. Paul goes again to Corinth. Except, far from being like this kumbaya moment around the fire, far from being this time of mutual encouragement and benefit, we know from 2 Corinthians 2 that it was a painful visit. A painful visit. This wasn't a kumbaya moment. A painful visit that leads him to write, again in the words of 2 Corinthians 2, a severe letter. A letter that's actually now lost to us. We we don't have it. But 2 Corinthians 2 tells us he wrote it. Think about how easy it would be for Paul to wipe his hands of the Corinthian people. Maybe he expected opposition from outside the church. That's fine. It's, it's, It's outside. It's the world. Different paradigm. I expect that, right? But inside? Inside? From his brothers and sisters? I know some of you have come this morning and your pain has been experienced not only from outside the church, but from inside the church as well. And, and, and I, I weep with you. I, I grieve that with you. But you need to see this, that, that Paul, despite his pain, despite the way things have turned out, Paul never changes his posture. His love persists. Why? Why? Well, this is our third and final point. Generosity in reception. It's kind of a strange and awkward title, but I couldn't think of a better one, so just just stick with me. But it comes out of verses 10 to 11, and I'll explain it in a bit. Paul writes, When Timothy comes, see that you put him at ease among you, for he is doing the work of the Lord as I am. So let no one despise him. Help him on his way in peace that he may return to me, for I am expecting him with the brothers. It's likely, we don't know for sure, but it's likely that Timothy came with this very letter we spent the past two years reading. It's likely Timothy read in just one sitting, right, a little bit shorter than two years, the words of the Apostle Paul to this dysfunctional yet beautiful church. And it's likely that there were a number of things that the Corinthians did not like hearing. Things that offended them, challenged them, confronted them. And having heard these things, here stands Timothy, right? Bearer of hard words. We know Timothy is not the, the, the most boisterous or, or, or sort of a braggadocious kind of guy. He's timid. We, we, we know this about Timothy. And there, there's timid Timothy having just said these hard things. We can feel the tension, right? I can. And maybe they thought something like this. Well, Paul's not here. so We can't harass or hurt him. But but here's timid Timothy. And though we don't know for sure, we, we can see, can't we, why they might be tempted to despise him or be tempted to do something other than helping him on his way in peace. Yet, Paul says they are to do none of these things. They are to generously receive Timothy. They are to receive him in such a way that he knows they have nothing to fear, or he has nothing to fear, and as one who does the work, like Paul, of the Lord. How do you respond? How do you respond when someone comes to you and says a hard thing, in love, but they say a hard thing? How how do you respond to that? Imagine you were in the crowd, and Timothy, as Paul's mouthpiece, 
was saying these things to you? How would you feel? What would you do? This happened to me recently. Someone said something to me that I didn't like, but it was true. They corrected me and I did not like it. It was uncomfortable, but it it was true. And I knew it meant I would have to overlook how I felt I had been wronged and hurt. I, I knew it meant I would in love have to persist, though I want to give up and distance. And if I'm being honest, I didn't, and I even don't right now, want to do it. And in this moment, me and you need to ask the why question. Why do any of this? Why be generous with our money and our plans and our lives and the lives of our children and our spouse? Why invest in a people who will hurt you and disappoint you and frustrate you and betray you? People who will leave you. Why? 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 And the answer the Bible gives us is very simple. Because there's good precedent for it. In Luke 7, we read the story of a notorious sinner. Someone who's famous for their sin. A notorious sinner who, who knowing what she is, falls at the feet of Jesus. And she begins to kiss his feet and anoint them. And of course, the religious people are outraged. They're upset. Jesus, they think, should be outraged, should be upset. But instead, Jesus pulls Peter aside and begins to tell Peter a story. And I want to tell the story to us now. In Luke 7, we read this. Two people owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii, the other 50. And neither of them had the money to pay him back. So he forgave the debts of both. Now Jesus asks, which of them will love him more? And Simon replied, I suppose, right? I suppose. I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned toward the woman and said to Simon, do do, do you see this woman? I came into your house. And Simon, you did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and, and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, But this woman, from the time I entered, has not stopped kissing my feet. Like, it's awkward. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little, loves little. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. If you are struggling to be generous this morning, it will do me uh, do no good for me to offer simple encouragement or, or berate you or, or play sad music accompanied by like sad pictures. Think of like, you know, in the arms of an angel, right? Instead, we're invited this morning to look to Jesus. Jesus who has given us everything. Do you believe that? It's not a rhetorical question. Do you believe that? Jesus who has given us everything. Jesus who gives us something so much better than what the world has to offer. Again, do you believe that? A generous people are the result of a generous God. A generous people see their need, see the great provision in the life and resurrection of Jesus, and live their whole lives in joyful and generous response. That's what it means to live on this side of the resurrection.
May that be true of us. Let's pray. So, Father, we come to you now this morning, hands grasping a, a number of things fairly tightly. Our money, our future, our plans. And Lord, we want to lay these things down now, knowing that, that what you give us in Christ and the plans you have for us in Christ are infinitely better than anything we can come up with on our own. Help us, Lord, to believe that. Help us to live that as a church. Help us to be a people who when we fail and when we hurt one another, persist in love. We love you, Jesus. We receive now the abundant gift of your life, your death on our behalf. And we say, Lord, birth in us a resurrection life. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.